Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. From the 26th to 29th October, I will be co-hosting the EPF Congress 2021, a congress brought to you by the European Patients Forum. This year's topic is the digital transformation of healthcare. Speakers from across Europe and organizations such as WHO, German Federal Ministry of Health, the European Medicines Agency, EIT Health, BMJ and others are going to discuss the state of digitalization in Europe with a heavy focus on the patient perspective. The event will be moderated by me and Yvette Jakab, who is the president of the European Patients Forum Youth Group. In this short episode, you will get to know Yvette, who was diagnosed with a rare disease called Wilson's disease at the age of 16 and underwent a liver transplant as a consequence. Yvette shared her story, the meaning and power of the EPF Youth Group, and why patients between 15 and 29 are such an underserved group. And if you're working in pharma or digital health and would like to work with the EPF Youth Group, learn more about the group and reach out to them through the links in the show notes. Also, see the link to the EPF Congress, check the program and join us on the 26th of October. diagnosed with Wilson's disease at the age of 16. How has that affected and shaped your life? It has been quite a long time ago. Yeah, it's been 13 years, so that here's my age <laughs> for anyone who wants <laughs> to count that. Yeah, it did affect my life and my life was all about Wilson's disease and liver transplant for half a year after the diagnosis and even a bit before the diagnosis, but Ever since I could go back to school after half a year, I didn't need to miss a class and I went to university. I did all the things that young people do in their 20s, the good ones, the crazy ones, the bad ones. And um, in practical terms, how it's affecting my life now, I'm on immunosuppressant medication for 13 years now, which is I have to take one pill every day to to lower my immune system so that it's not trying to reject my liver and uh, of course it has some long-term side effects if you're taking such a serious medicine for a long time so I'm also taking medication for my high blood pressure and more fun stuff are on the way I'm afraid but overall this is a very good quality of life uh, just perhaps to to explain a little bit Wilson's disease is a rare inherited disorder that causes copper to accumulate in one's liver, brain, or other vital organs, which is why you mentioned that she actually had um, a liver transplant. Uh, it's also among the, the rare diseases, so diseases that are um, not common at all, far from it. So from that perspective, care might be a little bit uh, more difficult. What did 
this mean, you know, for the care that you receive? Did you get a straightforward diagnosis when you were 16? Or uh, did it take maybe a longer time for the doctors to figure out what was the problem? I met a lot of lot of doctors in those days of diagnosis. They could only see my liver is failing and they had no idea why. And it happened up to the point that I get to liver transplant and they were not sure of the diagnosis. So I actually get my genetic tests when I was already after the liver transplant by a couple of months because it took a lot of time for them to wait for other patient samples so that it's worth it to run the test. In terms of doctors, other than that, I am extremely fortunate because the neighbor living next to us was one of the three rare disease doctors, the doctor house of Hungary. So that's not common. So he was very much involved with finding the diagnosis and actually he helped me a lot. And even with having a rare disease specialist next door, it was challenging. I had leukemia as a potential diagnosis. Then on the same day, I had uh, Epstein-Barr, which is much. So I've been on a real roller coaster up to the point that we got to Wilson's disease and they put me on the acute waiting list because for some disease is a chronic one. So you can live with it. You just need to have some medication so your body is able to process copper, just like diabetes or, or any other diseases like this. But there's a rare, even within the rare, a rare form of Wilton's disease when it just affects the liver so acutely that it needs to be transplanted. But the good thing about that liver transplant is also the only real cure of Wilson's disease. And there's copper in a lot of good things in life, like chocolate. So I wouldn't be able to eat chocolate if I was on that medication and without a liver transplant. And now I don't have Wilson's disease, hopefully because of how it's inherited. My future children won't have it either, or it would. It's, it has a very low chance. And all I have is the transplanted liver. You're currently the president of the European Youth Patient Group. Can you perhaps share a little bit of a reflection of what that role actually means and how big is the European Youth Patient Group? The European Patient Forum's Youth Group is a group of patients living all around Europe from 15 to 29 and currently have, we have nine members. How we work is EPF, the European Patients Forum, is essentially a membership organization. So EPF has a lot of members, both disease-specific and national coalitions, and they can assign a representative of theirs to our group. So we have nine people from really from all across Europe, from different disease areas currently, we have a multiple sclerosis representative, epilepsy from kidney disease, liver disease. We have uh, cystic fibrosis. We have a lot of different chronic conditions and we come together and have two major roles. One is to channel the young patient's voice to EPF's work and to the membership. And the second one is to represent what is important to young patients. So for that, we usually come up with uh, projects which are topic-specific that are affecting 
all chronically ill patients and usually all patients but uh, highly affecting young patients and then we are working on that and disseminating our results and our views on that specific topic that mm -hmm. um, well, in one of our discussions that we had prior to this call you mentioned that for example in in digital health there is a lack of uh, representation of young people because when talking about applications or healthcare in general, uh, we usually talk about uh, pediatric care, so care for children or adult care. And also when you're um, a patient uh, that's under age, once you reach the age of 18, you immediately uh, go to specialists for adults. So it's a huge shift from the way care is delivered for, for, for children to how it is delivered for, for adults. Can you talk a little bit more about why is the youth population specific and what exactly are the needs that are different from adults or children? Actually, the youth group, we are celebrating our 10th anniversary and prior to me arriving to the youth group, there was a project called Transitioning from Pediatric to Adult Care. And this was exactly what it was about, that there's this transition period. And for some people, it happens at 18. For some, they stay at the pediatric unit until 26, even 30. But anyhow, there's a transition in your mom taking care of your medicine and managing your disease to you becoming independent, going to another care unit, having new doctors. And it's a really vulnerable age from that standpoint point of view. But of course, being a teenager and a young adult is very vulnerable in itself. You are more prone to engage in risky behavior. And it's just a time to really try yourself out. So what I found with uh, transplanted patients, and we do look at children, and I work with children and uh, young adults, and of course, adolescents, is that this transition period is really risky in terms of adherence. So even it can happen that, for example, they are taking steroids and they hate how steroids make their faces look. And I know I hated it as well. But for some patients, if we don't give them enough support, and it was really, we are really proud of not losing any organ due to non-adherence, from the time we started to support these kids because it can really happen. It happened that they just flush on the toilet the steroids and not taking them because they know that's causing their face to look bigger and they just don't like how it looks. Or another example that happened where sadly one of the patients, I think he was around 17 or 18 and his mother died very suddenly and the father just couldn't take on managing the disease he couldn't do it either, so he stopped taking medicines regularly and he lost his kidney. So we are just there and there's a huge need, even if nothing extraordinary happens to you, that you need to be supported in managing your disease. And I think it's there are a lot of other age groups that are vulnerable as well. What's special about young patients is that we also have a very high level of digital health literacy. So digital literacy. So we have a high unmet need 
and we have a really good ground on high digital uh, literacy. So it would be really worthwhile to specially invest into com coming up with digital technology for mm -hmm. these people. How diverse is the group, so the EPF youth group, in terms of representation of different countries across Europe? We are very diverse and actually we have Cyprus, Hungary, UK, Bulgaria, Slovakia. Eastern Europe is very heavily represented. We have Serbia, hemophilia patient, and actually our members are changing pretty rapidly. They age out, they decide to prioritize other things. So every two, three years, the whole group almost changes, but very continuously. So previously we had Germany, France, a lot of countries, but we always try to, when we are having a call for new members, like we are having one right now, the country of origin is really always a factor in our decision to make it as diverse as we can. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the specific needs of the youth uh, population, but what what kind of power does the EPF youth group have? Do you, for example, also talk to legislators? How do you um, advocate for the specifics of this population of patients? One way we have power is through EPF, really. We have a board representative who has voting rights, so in any serious, heavy decision of EPF, we have a voting right, which is great. It, we have it for two years now, I believe, and we were really happy about that change. Another way we have influence is we are involved in EPF projects. If there's a patient panel, you most probably will find a youth group representative in any EU project the EPF is involved in. And of course, we have power through the members because the, every youth group member is a part of a membership organization who will advocate for their own disease and who will advocate and then it just really powers each other. Another way we have power, and that's another line we are doing, is what I mentioned, the topic-specific projects that we have, that we really we come up with the topic, we maybe do some surveys on what is interesting for patients right now. I mentioned the one from transitioning from pediatric to adult care. Then we had one on employment and young patient employment. We had recommendations. We had a huge workshop, webinar, because then, of course, it was already in the COVID period and we invited a lot of uh, influential people, decision makers, uh, all kinds of stakeholders from industry, from other patient organizations to come there. And we had recommendations on how we see the topic and what we recommend employers to accommodate young or, or any patient with a chronic disease, basically. And the newer ones that are in the preparation is on sexual health and well-being because we find that it's a huge taboo and really any patient but young patients specifically need more empowerment to talk about it with their partners, to talk about it with their healthcare providers and to 
give them some ideas and tools on how to search for information regarding sexual health and their own condition. And the other one is young patient involvement in patient organizations. Since you mentioned, you know, a survey that you did or recommendations about uh, employers and chronic patients, how to approach those. So um, can you perhaps mention any of the results or the key points of those um, research points? I'm sure there's listeners that are also employers, so it might be interesting for them to, to hear a little bit more about that. We have a fact sheet, so I'm happy to link it, send it to you and to attach it to the, to the podcast. Surprisingly, we said it would be really nice if the type of the job um, allows it to have more potential for home-based, so like working from home office, basically. And that was prior to COVID. So we recommended something that happened either way because of an external factor, and we can see it working very well. What we have found is many patients who have an invisible illness uh, which do not disclose their condition on their job interview, for example. And of course, those with a visible illness don't really have this choice. But even those with an invisible illness, we are trying to encourage to do so if it feels comfortable. Because what we advise employers as well is to talk freely, but only up until it's comfortable for the patient on how they can accommodate anything around work times how they have to miss a day or two because of going to hospital visits and so on so this was our first recommendation to talk basically we had another one on supporting or yeah increasing the amount if the job description allows it of course to work from home, and that was prior to COVID, so that basically solved itself. And we had so much more that will be in the link of the fact sheet that I will provide you after the podcast. I'll definitely add that to the to the show notes. You've been diagnosed, and basically your problem has been solved uh, 13 years ago, and a lot has happened since. What's your perspective on what kind of position are patients in today compared to 13 years ago when we didn't have social media yet, uh, the information on the internet was already there, but still um, kind of the support was available in a much smaller, to a smaller extent than it is today. What's kind of the discussions around this that you have in the youth group? Exactly. I was diagnosed and transplanted in 2008, the same year I went to Facebook. So the two two big dates of my life came in one year. What I see is patients, of course, are getting much more empowered by all the information they can find. And now it's not only the young patients, because what was very evident back then, me, a 16-year-old, I was able to look on the Google sites, but my 40-year-old parents weren't. So in a sense, I had more information and I was 16 and they were making decisions for me. So there can be an information balance even between parents and the kid is more tech-savvy 
and the parents. So I definitely looked up everything I could find. I also have had and still have the privilege to talk English and to be able to read English because the amount of trustworthy material in my own language is, especially for a rare disease, is just almost non-existent. So I could look any kind of scientific publications, even so that after I became a researcher and I my job was to read the scientific papers, but I also still rely on Google. So what I see is, of course, there are a lot of good things that are happening, but not all patients are e-patients. I'm not an e-patient and I'm young and I probably should be, but I'm not engaging with that many of digital health technology as I could be, or maybe it's my type of condition that's not necessitating that. What I see now is we had a small, I wouldn't even call it a survey, within the nine of us, the nine youth group members, and I listed them topics that we are usually getting approached on from external partners to talk, and one of them was digital health. And digital health was the only one that all nine of us were interested. So I see a lot of interest now, a lot more trust. I see that patients now see a lot more potential in digital, especially with COVID and with the trying out things that did work and trying out things that did not work, but will stick with us as ideas that it could work in the future. So I really see it's getting more into, I would say, the popular day-to-day lives of people. But of course, it will just elaborate from here. During the 26th and 29th of October, we will co-host the European Patient Forum Congress together. It's going to be a four-day event about digital health trends in Europe, a lot focused on policy, um, on the EU trends, and of course with a heavy focus on the patient perspectives. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about which parts of the program are you most uh, looking forward to? I'm most excited about the co-creation parts. So when we talk about how patients can be not only as participants are engaged in the development of a technology, but maybe even initiators. I've seen patient organizations who had a call for ideas for their members. The members came with ideas on digital health technologies, maybe applications, and then they had a voting and then added a grant to the first one. So these approaches are the ones where they have a really a brilliant idea and then go from there are just, yeah showing us a really bright future on how patients can be really helping and how technology developers can help patients to come up with solutions that are answering real needs. Based on the fact that you mentioned that there's needs that are not addressed for uh, the youth population and at the same time co-creation is very important and very uh, welcomed by, by the patients. Definitely in the last 10 even more years there's been a huge shift and it's a common belief that medicine needs to change from the paternalistic model 
to the co-creation collaborative model. So we talk so much about that in the public discourse that it feels as if this is something that's already a part of healthcare. So from that perspective, maybe can you offer any reflections again regarding how do you, do you see any changes in terms of how patients are engaged either with healthcare providers, either with the pharma companies that are keen on working together with patients or digital health companies? Um, can any of them also reach out you know, to the EPF youth group in case they would like to learn more or learn more about the, the needs that you were mentioning are not being addressed? We would be happy to get reached out. Unfortunately, what I can tell to this day, we haven't been reached out by any of the digital technology companies. We have provided our inputs and our perspectives on many topics, but not digital ones yet, apart from these discussions when we just talk about it and not do it. Actually, throughout the Congress, there's a chance there might be session, a networking session, the youth group. We are coming up with very playful ideas on how to connect the Congress participants with each other and with the youth group. So that would be a really good start if someone is interested to get to know the youth group members, what we do and how we could help them. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. To learn more about other episodes, browse through the podcast player that you're using and also visit our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Stay tuned.